my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a director. Shocker. We haven't done someone that's not a director in a long time, have we? Yeah, we should do an actress, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I think that so. That would let us talk about someone who's a woman again, <laughs> yeah. which we definitely need. But instead, today we're talking about Edgar G. Elmer who is the king of Poverty Row Cinema. A man who, uh, his following is very small, uh, but very passionate. The most Maudit of Maudit auteurs. Mm -hmm. Cage Cinema took him under their wing and just kind of rose him to the ranks in their magazine of artists that worked under difficult situations but created things that are actually worthwhile sometimes in their opinion so let's uh set the scene for how a man like edgar g elmer could flourish it back in the hollywood studio era you had your major studios the mgms the warner brothers to a lesser extent the universals and then you had uh the poverty row studios which specialized in b movies uh, distributed basically for a flat rate. They, If you made a B-movie, you didn't take the profits. You just rented it out to theaters. Um, and so uh, B-movie studios could send them to theaters and figure out, okay, if we send them to this many theaters, we can make a guaranteed profit. So there's really no incentive to make great work. Movies like The Bowery Boys uh, or Charlie Chan Mysteries or Bella Lugosi Horror Movies. And these are studios like Monogram, PRC, Republic Pictures. The most influential piece of writing on Edgar G. Elmer was by Andrew Saris. The mascot of the important cinema club, if you will, <laughs> yeah. considering how many times we mention him. Andrew Saris and Peter Bogdanovich are probably the two most mentioned people <laughs> on this podcast. Orson Welles coming a third and Peter Bogdanovich doing impersonations of Orson <laughs> Welles. But in his book, The American Cinema, when he famously ranked all of the directors who he considered good and tried to put them in historical context, he wrote of Edgar G. Elmer, the French call him a cineaste maudit, and directors certainly don't come any more maudit. But yes, Virginia, there is an Edgar G. Elmer, and he is no longer one of the private jokes shared by auteur critics, but one of the minor glories of, of the cinema. Here is a career, more subterranean than most, which be signature of a genuine artist. Strictly speaking, most of Elmer's films are of interest only to unthinking audiences or specialists in mise-en-scene. Yet, anyone who loves the cinema must be moved by Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> whoa, 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 what? A film with a scenario so atrocious that it takes 40 minutes to establish that the Daughter of Dr. Jekyll is indeed the Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Elmer's camera never falters, even when his characters disintegrate. As the executor of the Murnau estate, he is faithful to his trust, and when his material is less impossible, his reflexes are still sharp And for the meaningful challenges of the Black Cat, Bluebeard, Ruthless, Murder is My Beat, Detour, and The Naked Dawn. That a personal style could emerge from the lowest depths of Poverty Row is a tribute to a director without alibis. So, before we jump into the good stuff, the stuff that... Edgar G. Elmer is known for. Let's take him at his worst, shall we? Well, it's specifically what Andrew Sarris just talked about, which was The Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. A film that we both watched. Yeah, we had an Edgar G. Elmer night a few nights ago. Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. What can I say? It's it's, it's so boring. It's a, it's, it's a piece of shit. Although you kind of you kind of enjoyed it when we were watching it. Like, yeah, it moved along okay. But you they, like movies with haunted houses. I love movies with haunted <laughs> houses, but this one didn't deliver as much as I thought it was going to. So Edgar G. Elmer, when you think about his style, you think about particular things, right? He came out of the German Expressionism, so he worked with Murnau. He claims to have worked with Fritz Lang and designing sets and things like that. He uh, he designed sets for. 
Metropolis, uh, M, according and, to him. And also Max Reinhardt's theater company, which was very important in Berlin. Many of his claims have been disputed in, you know, interwar Berlin, claims to have known Bertolt Brecht. He, he claims to have, he went to Hollywood with F.W. Murnau and worked on Sunrise as an assistant. And he claims to have invented the Steadicam shot. Well, yeah, the moving camera in the last laugh. Yeah. He claims a lot of things like giving uh, Douglas Sirk his first directorial job, mm-hmm. that he worked with all sorts of classical musical composers. He said that he supervised the music of Disney's Fantasia. Uh, yeah, and I mean, who knows what's true? Well, people call him a liar most yeah. of the time. Yeah, Even his daughter has gone on record saying like she doesn't know what's true or not. Mm-hmm. And most of these crazy claims come from an interview that was done with Peter Bogdanovich. One of the only, he did a few interviews, but this is like the most major interview from just before he died when the auteur critics like Andrew Saris uh, were starting to rediscover him. And Bogdanovich wanted really to do a career retrospective. Mm-hmm. But at that point, Ulmer was already in poor health. He had suffered a stroke, yeah, and he died... Uh- Bogdanovich went off to make the last picture show and Ulmer died maybe just a year or two later. But reading the interview, what comes across is sort of like Ulmer's wounded pride. Uh, He definitely is not a modest man in the interview. He talks a lot about, uh, you know, Bogdanovich asked him, oh yeah, you made that uh, venereal disease film, uh, Damaged Goods. Uh, Was it good? And Ulmer goes, oh yes, it was a a wonderful film, a terrific film. And and it's not. Any film that people don't like and is pretty universally known as a bad one, Ulmer will be like, "Mm, the producers took that away from me and cut out this important scene that would have really made the picture shine. But the tragedy of Ulmer, which is part of what makes him interesting, is the fact that he got one shot to be a big studio director after having worked with Murnau and half, after allegedly having directed silent westerns, although... We, that don't exist. They don't exist, and yeah. we can't, that's another claim that we can't verify, but he made one big studio movie, which was The Black Cat from 1934 with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. This was an offshot of a producer, Carl Lemley Jr., and so it was a producer that spearheaded pictures like Dracula, Frankenstein, and by extension, The Black Cat. And The Black Cat was a big hit at the time. Even so, uh, Palmer made the decision to run off with the wife of the studio head's nephew, Mm -hmm. which essentially led to him being blacklisted from Hollywood. So the Black Cat actually did fairly well. It was not a super giant mega hit, and it was very controversial due to its content, Mm -hmm. which includes people having their skin flayed from their bodies. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the thing about... Edgar G. Elmer is, I guess, what's interesting about him, as Saris indicated, was that he was this guy who, you know, in all of these really Z-grade or at best B-grade, many times exploitation movies, you can see glimmers of a personal style. You can see him uh, working against opposition to impose something of himself on the material. I mean, a lot of the times when I, w- I watched eight of his films before this podcast. I think I watched about that, yeah. And which is easy to do because most of them are about an hour long. The perfect movie length. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he's made several of my favorite movies. And he's made a lot of movies that, frankly, are only of interest if you're looking out for Edgar G. Elmer's signature. So I love Edgar G. Elmer. I think I maybe love the idea of Edgar G. Elmer a little more than uh, than the results. And I think I think the his body of work is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, he actually made a lot of movies when you look at his filmography. And if you try going one by one looking for that personal touch, I don't even think that every project will give you that glimmer of hope to keep going. Well, there are, he worked in all genres. He's best known for sort of horror movies or film noir, but he also did like educational films. He did a TV pilot for the Swiss Family Robinson. He did uh, Yiddish musicals. He did a, a nudist camp movie. He did an 
all black cast uh, movie from the Moon 30s. Over Harlem. Yeah. So he would basically go wherever someone would give him a job. Mm-hmm. But the most fruitful period of his career was when uh, in the 40s he was working at Producers Releasing Corporation, PRC, the Poverty Row Studio, where he was essentially the king of the lot. And the way that the Poverty Row usually worked is that they would give him a very short amount of time to shoot. Ulmer claimed that all of his pictures were shot in about six days. Mm -hmm. That can be very easily disputed. (laughs) And that they would give them a subject and would let them go do whatever they wanted as long as they came back with a finished picture. Uh, The two of his movies that are my favorites... Uh, and two of my favorite movies of all time are The Black Cat and Detour. But The Black Cat being a universal picture. Right. And and Detour being kind of the quintessential pro- poverty row film noir. You know, watching The Black Cat again this time for this podcast, I found that I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. Now, on the positive side, The Black Cat has two great performances from Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi who are going head to head. I'm actually surprised uh, you, you didn't like it as much as you wanted to because I watched it this time for maybe the seventh or eighth time in my life and I just found it like almost overwhelmingly powerful. Really? I, like, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. Wow. Uh, I mean, it just seems like this perfect combination of, you know, two iconic actors and just this awful otherworldly mood that Ulmer evokes. I mean, it, this is a movie that really feels like you're going into the darkness. It's actually a movie that inspired a lot of literature around it. And by that, I mean fiction. Um, there's a book that I love called Flicker, which is a novel about a um, film theorist that falls under sway of this movie that is basically a um, copy of The Black Cat. And the director disappeared, and he goes and talks to cinematographers and stuff like that. And the movie casts a kind of spell on its audience. And I can see where you're coming from when it comes to the mood of the Black Cat. So the movie is about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Lugosi is traveling to meet Karloff because during the First World War, he was prisoner of war, tortured by Karloff, who also killed his wife and daughter. There are also two sort of audience surrogate characters, this young couple who have come along with him. Um, and basically they're there just so that Karloff and Lugosi don't kill each other at the beginning of the movie. Uh, like the dynamic between Karloff and Lugosi is so incredible in this film. There is this like simmering tension to them. The sats are pure Ulmer. This kind of... Ah, they just weren't as crazy as I wanted them to really? be. Really? Yeah. Like they're this kind of amazing modernist, like this chic look it almost looks like you know what you want when you go to ikea (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah this beautiful modernist mansion uh the editing the camera i don't know like i'm just babbling but uh, but i think the key moment for me is when there's a confrontation between lugosi and karloff in the basement of this mansion uh and lugosi is scared by the black cat and then beethoven's symphony number seven starts playing and the camera just sort of like swerves through the basement while karloff delivers this monologue about how you know i don't know death is enveloping us all and it will envelop both of us soon but not just yet but I don't know. There's something about that moment that just like the way the combination of the camera movement and Karloff's narration and the music just like sends a shiver down my spine. It's like pure cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What to do. Well, OK. You I know. think it's just an and, you know, I think the movie is just full of kind of 
this repressed emotion, this repressed kind of hatred and sadness and regret. And it's a very transgressive film as well. Very transgressive, considering what the subject matter is dealing with. Because we find out that Karloff uh, has Lugosi's wife, basically her body preserved in the basement. And he's also married to Lugosi's daughter, who it turns out is alive. And it climaxes with a black mass sequence, you know, like a, a proper Satanist mass, which, I mean, none of this would have even been conceivable in a movie even a year later when the production code was really enforced. It's actually it's a movie that exists in its own space. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But before I'm, you know, not tepid. I think it's a it's a good movie, mm-hmm. but it just didn't blow me away as much as I wanted it to. But Detour, on the other hand, okay. Well, Detour, you know, flash forward twelve years later, long after Ulmer has run off with the uh, nephew's daughter, he's king of the lot at PRC, PRC and this is. This is basically his best-known movie, right? Yeah. What's it about? Detour is about a big old loser who (laughs) plays uh, the piano at a bar, and his girlfriend moves to Hollywood. Right. And he's stuck at this bar. His life is miserable. And he decides, you know what? I'm just going to hitch a ride all the way to meet my girl. And that's what the story of the movie is. And a bunch of complications arise on the way, including meeting a... What would the word that we would describe uh, the character played by actress? Anne Savage. Uh, would be well, a monster of some I, kind? I mean, I, I hesitate to say shrewish. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just a, a a very monstrous woman. You know, Anne Savage, people listening might have might have seen her playing Guy Madden's mom in My Winnipeg. One, one of, I think, only three or four movies she ever made. When she comes into his car, uh, he describes her as a really kind of beautiful passage of dialogue. The guy says, I got the impression of beauty, not the beauty of a movie actress or the beauty you dream about with your wife, but a real beauty, a beauty that's almost homely. Now, this is a movie that Edgar G. Elmer claims he shot in six days. That is an absolute lie. His uh, daughter found records saying that it shot for about 14 days, mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. Throwing all of the mythology behind the film away from just watching it, enjoying it. This is a movie that, to me, is perfect. I don't think I would change anything about it. I mean, it has all of Ulmer's visual flair. I mean, when people talk about Ulmer being this guy who could, you know, make something out of nothing, I think they're really thinking about the early New York scenes in this movie where, well, I mean, the, the movie has this grim, fatalist tone. But even so, Ulmer doesn't, he doesn't depict the early New York scenes as being this lost paradise. New York seems so kind of bleak and oppressive there. It's like, like shrouded in mist, probably mostly to hide the fact that they didn't have sets. Right. All they had was a Riverside Drive street sign. But it seems like this horrible place that he tried to escape from. And then Ulmer contrasts it to the desert that he drives through, which is an entirely different space, but it seems no less oppressive. Mm-hmm. And for the first about half of the movie, the film just crackles along with dialogue, scene transitions, little expressionist touches like the famed giant coffee cup that appears in a scene. You'll know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's even echoes of what would later appear in the works of like uh, the Coen brothers as Blood Simple, Mm -hmm. like specific scenes even, Mm -hmm. until finally Anne Savage comes onto the scene and the film turns into this other beast. Well, Anne Savage... I don't even know how to describe her. She has this presence. It's almost like, um, I hate to use this example, but like Heath Ledger as the Joker comes into the Batman movie and like disrupts it somehow. Or actually a better example would be Sandra Bernhardt in The King of Comedy. Yeah. What's great about her is, I I mean, she has this 
crackling energy to her, this kind of dangerous energy. She's also, she's beautiful, as he indicates in the dialogue, but... She has a mean face. Yeah, she has a mean face. (laughs) And you can imagine if this movie were shot at a major studio and they'd cast somebody like Joan Crawford in that role, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, she actually does look like somebody who, like, had to fight her way around the back of, like a train car or something as a hobo. And just the dialogue that crackles between the star played by Tom Neal, who was later convicted for murder (laughs) of his wife, which is very similar to what happens in this movie. is so fun, almost Howard Hoxian at times, Mm -hmm. but with like a nastier edge than those movies have. They're perfectly complimented as actors too, because she's such a hard presence. And he is just like, soft and rumpled such a schlub like there are so many scenes where Ulmer's camera just focuses on his face and he really masterfully lights his face it's just this sad like these eyes that seem to just have this thousand mile stare uh and you know just sweaty and awful and if you haven't seen detour go watch it now oh please Um, do it's one of those films that weirdly is believed to be in the public domain probably because it came from the prc studios so there's a million bootleg copies available but one of the things that I love is the kind of last act of the movie because it does not go where you think it will. Mm-hmm. And it basically sets up the scenario, then it then pulls the rug out from under until you get this fatalist, terrible ending that Ulmer has talked about that he just wanted to be about fate. And I guess in his eyes, fate is just the destruction of oneself without... Um, them doing anything to deserve that fate. But I think with both of these movies, particularly with Detour, one of Omer's great talents was being able to create, since he didn't have unlimited resources, he used what resources he had to make an otherworldly atmosphere. And I would say that otherworldly atmosphere continues in some of his other movies like today but you're I, just searching for well, it like you're desperately looking for that well okay today, what you loved about detour and the black cat today i watched uh the man from planet x a film that i think its iconography has become famous in science fiction pop culture um joe dante features the uh alien in the classic looney tunes back in action right the alien looks kind of like jeff dunham's puppet walter <laughs> That is a reference that I do not understand. I guess that's Jeff Dunham, uh, novices. <laughs> well, clearly you're not. You haven't been to the real America lately. <laughs> I mean, The Man from Planet X is basically an Ed Wood level movie, and it's quite boring. And but, it's often talked about because of the fact that it's set mostly on fog shrouded sets, isn't it? Yeah, okay. That's what's good about it, though. I mean, the movie looks, I think, amazing. I mean, the sets are no better than Ed Wood's in Plan 9 from Outer Space, and the spaceship is no better than the ones he had in that. But yeah, it has that fog-shrouded German expressionist aesthetic. But then you watch that and think, okay, this looks great, but like, is that enough? Like, do I need story and characters (laughs) and... But then entertainment that most movies would usually deliver? But then you also think, okay, let's give Ulmer the benefit of the doubt and say that What's interesting about Ulmer is the fact that he was able to take movies that would have been bad and add something to them. I mean, if you're going to give that to him, I guess. But, like, you know, when he did sometimes weasel his way back into the studio system, which happened now and then in his career. Well, he didn't ever make another studio movie, but he made bigger budget movies, some of which were distributed by studios. He basically had two shots in the late 40s to make it out. He had two relatively high profile ones. One was The Strange Woman. Uh, starring Hedy Lamarr. And she's the one that requested for Ulmer to be the director of that film. Mm -hmm. And it was her first film after her contract at MGM ended, so it's 
technically an independent film. It was a moderately successful movie, and it doesn't feel like a lot of other Omer movies. It's a very kind of uh, prestigious, you know, literary adaptation based on a bestseller of the time. Well, we watch Ruthless, right? Yeah, and that's the next one from 1948. And that's his kind of adaptation of a Citizen Kane style story. Well, and we're making it sound a lot more exciting than it well, actually is. I, I like Ruthless well enough. Uh, people people have called it a Citizen Kane in miniature. And in fact, the poster even looks like the poster for Citizen Kane. Uh, it's clearly very indebted to Citizen Kane. It has the low ceilings and it has, it has Ulmer's uh, budget version of deep focus cinematography where he'll put an object out of focus in the extreme foreground and then have somebody in the extreme background in focus. But can you imagine if the Ulmer that had directed Detour and he had that tight a script for Ruthless had come onto that film, what it could have been? Well, because what you end up with is a f- kind of flabby morality tale. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ruthless is only okay. I mean, it's uh, it's unrealistic to expect somebody to make Detour. Over and over oh, again, yeah. I mean, what Ruthless does show is, you know, Ulmer's incredible formal elegance. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the sets are beautiful. The, uh, the camera work is impeccable. And then he had other pictures that were um, kind of heralded by, like we said, the French um, cinema fans like The Naked Dawn, which uh, you mentioned Francois Truffaut said that inspired him when he made Jules and Jim. Oh, yeah, I've got a good uh, Francois Truffaut quote about The Naked Gun. The Naked Dawn. I almost said The, <laughs> the Naked, naked Gun? gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I almost said That'd that. would be amazing. Uh, this is what Truffaut said. Talking about The Naked Dawn is equivalent to drawing a portrait of its author because we see him behind every image and feel him intimately when the lights go back on. Wise and indulgent, playful and serene, vital and clear, in short, a good man, like the ones I've compared him to. The Naked Dawn is one of those movies we know was made with joy. Every shot shows a love of cinema and pleasure in working in it. It is also a pleasure to see it again and to talk to friends about it. A small gift from Hollywood. You watched Naked Dawn. What did you think of it? I liked it very much. Uh, I, I don't know if it's quite that good, but, but, <laughs> but, it's, but, but it's very good. It's a, it's a Western set just south of the border. Uh, one of the rare color Ulmer pictures. Yeah, about a Mexican bandit who recruits this kind of humble Mexican dirt farmer and his wife to help him with some robberies. And basically the movie contrasts two different lifestyles, this kind of life of the life of the libertine bandit. Libertine? Libertine? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter. And that of this kind of repressed domestic farmer. The farmer is kind of tempted into that lifestyle. The the woman is tempted into that lifestyle. The, the farmer is terrible to his wife. It's quite a slow paced film, oddly enough. It has you know Truffaut praised it for many of its long sh- long takes, which were probably um, consequence of not having that much time and yeah, just having to shoot it quickly. But it really does kind of let the action breathe. And this is the hard thing with Ulmer because. I'm looking at trying to figure out what his authorial signature is, and I'm not sure what it is, except that it's a well-directed movie. I mean, see, that's the thing about Ulmer, right? Is that when we talk about him, like, Ruthless is a competently directed picture. I think, but, it's, I think it's even better than that. But, but as an Ulmer fan, you're looking for that, like, little bit of extra, right? Whether it be the set design of Man from Planet X mm-hmm. or that weird dream sequence 
in Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> but what is Ulmer's authorial signature? I mean, that's why, even though I just watched eight of his movies this week and I've seen others, I still don't, I don't, I don't feel like I quite have a handle on it and it might just be a mirage. But <laughs> Ulmer, it was really interesting that later in his career, he just went where the money was. So he ended up in Italy directing costume pictures with like Italian co-directors, where if you read interviews by him, he's like, oh no, I mostly directed it. That was That name was put on for tax reasons. <laughs> but then he did a nudist camp movie, The Naked Venus, which was about as low as you could get at that time. That was the porn of the, of its time. Mm-hmm. But I just watched Frank Henenlotter's documentary, That's Exploitation, where he shows clips from like dozens of nudist camp movies. Like this was a real genre at the time. And then he shows clips from The Naked Venus, which is so much more beautiful and elegant than any of the other ones. Just these gliding tracking shots. Like it really does look like F.W. Murnau shot it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me watch more Ulmer pictures. I've already watched enough, Will. <laughs> But you also watch his final film, The Cavern, which stars guy that uh, you're wondering why he's in Enter the Dragon, John Saxon. Ah, as all great movies, uh, John Saxon stars in it. And John Saxon also said about working on The Cavern that it was not a good movie. And he didn't think that Ulmer was a good director. Well, The Cavern, which, again, was Ulmer's last movie. He was on Oxygen at the time of directing, supposedly. It was a famously disastrous project. This actually was a labor of love for Ulmer. He tried for a while to get it made. uh, But financing fell through halfway through shooting. It was shot in a really cold Yugoslavian cave. When you watch it, you can actually see the actor's breath. It's not shot on some set somewhere. Uh, Ulmer's health was deteriorating to the point where I think he was blind at one point or (laughs) or he collapsed on the set and it's even suggested he might have suffered some small strokes and then to top it off during the dubbing period uh, he had an affair with the actress who dubbed the leading lady's voice in German and ended up fathering a child with her Ulmer had a wife uh, Shirley Ulmer who was kind of his Polly Platt or his Alma Reville she was his script supervisor so she was there hand in hand on every film Mm -hmm. that he shot and they stayed married but uh, as you can imagine, it put tension into their marriage. Especially that she left uh, the husband of the uh, the studio head nephew mm-hmm. for Ulmer. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they stayed together for so long. Hey, so I'm sure that he was wor- he considered it worth it. But um, yeah, the the cavern it's set at, uh, towards the end of the Second World War. I think six people of different nationalities serving in the war get trapped in an underground cavern and have to work together to get out. Just a really solid, tight little movie. I actually feel really bad because the only version that's available of it is a cropped pan and scan version. Yeah, it looks like shit. Yeah, it looks like shit, and it was shot in CinemaScope. But, I mean, you can tell that it has that beautiful kind of Ulmer expressionist atmosphere in there. It's quite well acted. It's pretty tense throughout. Got my interest. You mentioned that there's only a pan and scan version available of it, and that's something that kind of dogs all the releases of Ulmer's work is that there's no real definitive editions. Now, there's a company by David Callett uh, called All Day that released a little Ulmer box set that had um, Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, it had Moon Over Harlem. Uh, uh, the Strange Woman, Strange Illusion, something else, I think. But even then, they weren't like really remastered versions. No, it was and, probably and, the best print they could and find. And this is also a 15 or 16-year-old set, so it looks pretty bad now. I would love it if somebody could make a really nice Edgar G. Elmer Blu-ray set based on whatever the best materials available are. Because, I mean, he's an auteur who, I mean, if you're going to take him seriously, if you're going to try to find out what's good about him, it's best to see as much as you can. because A Jess Franco figure, if you will. Yeah. But because he exists in in moments and fragments from movie to movie. 
Every now and then a whole movie, but mostly just moments. And you want them in the best quality possible. So we're putting, you know, the call out that Kino or Criterion better step up. You import Cinema Club listeners. Come on, guys. Like, if, if you're looking to lose some money, but <laughs> but make me happy, let's see the definitive Edgar G. Elmer box set. We, me and Will have talked about that at this point in time, it's never been better to be a fan of physical media because yeah. they've been released more and more. But here's something that people haven't tackled yet. But, you know, summing up Edgar G. Elmer, the natural question that one would ask about him is, what if he became just a regular director at a studio? Would he have been a great director? Uh, I think it would have been like a Michael Curtiz-like fan. I agree. So Curtiz has like a Casablanca in him, right? Mm -hmm. Just like Omer had a detour in him. Mm -hmm. But I think that all the stuff that really attracts us to Omer's work would have probably been sanded off as he went along. Well, I think... Ulmer is as much an idea as he is a filmmaker. Like, yeah. Like, you like to talk about him you, and what he represents. Like, yeah, you love the idea of this guy who triumphed over adversity, who brought his, uh, you know, vision, neo expressionist style to these films. I mean, I, I can't really see any or much of a consistent personal touch in the films of Michael Curtiz, which is not a knock on him because he's he's made so many great films. Yeah, he's uh, not not competent. He's better than yeah, that. Yeah, he's better than that. Whereas I can, like, at moments decipher the personal touch of Edgar G. Elmer. So he might have been able to bring that uh, to his studio movies, but then again, maybe not. Maybe he would have just made movies like uh, The Strange Woman, which is a perfectly competent, average prestige movie yeah, at the time. Yeah, like Ruthless. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Ruthless, I I like. Um, But yeah. You bought it on Blu-ray. You're going to enjoy it. (laughs) You paid big money for that movie. Yeah. So next week, it's our big Christmas episode blowout. Now, we didn't do a month of Christmas films like we did for Halloween because we're not insane. No. But we really saved it for one real quality, juicy feast. We're going to watch all of Tim Allen's Santa Claus movies. Ah, yes. Tim Allen, the Edgar G. Elmer of the 90s. The man who put a personal vision on... Uh... <laughs> so why why do you want to watch The Santa Claus, other than the fact... Do I? <laughs> you're the one who was like, we need to watch The Santa Claus. Okay. Don't play your shtick here. There's a bit of revisionist history here. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah. I was like, let's do, like, some classics, like, uh, I don't know. It's what, a Wonderful what, Life. Life, yeah. Frank Capra or um, The Muppets. They have a very good Christmas Carol adaptation. I think it would just be funny to watch the three Santa Claus movies and talk about them. I, it's been a while since I've... Well, actually, that's not true. I saw... <laughs> I saw I saw part of the Santa Claus three on TV last year. I've was, never seen two was, or three. Yeah, I've never seen two. Uh, I saw the first one when it came out. Uh, me too in movie theaters. I was four years old at the time, I think. Or I five. remember not liking it and telling my neighbor who asked me what she should get me for Christmas that year. I said anything but the Santa Claus. All- she got me the Santa Claus on VHS. <laughs> Also, uh, Tim Allen was such a major figure in the 90s, especially for kids like us. He was just everywhere. Not that like, not that he was ever a favorite of mine or anything. Was, I watched Home Improvement yeah, pretty religiously. Yeah, me too. Well, just because it was on all the <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> I don't even remember like one laugh from Home yeah. Improvement. So, yeah. And he's a guy who's just sort of disappeared, even though he has a sitcom on as we speak. That has run for seven or eight seasons. But like good people don't watch it. <laughs> you know. If if I can be elitist here for a minute, if I can, if I can, for a minute, if, don't you do that for forty pure minutes if, every week? If I can express the attitude that lost the Democrats the election, uh, <laughs> no good people watch Tim Allen's current sitcom. What is it called? It's like Joe Somebody. No, that's the that's classic a movie. Film. No, it's uh, Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing. Uh, because he is the last, <laughs> the last real man. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm excited to dive into this next week. But until then, go on iTunes, subscribe. Ah, eh, who cares? And no, no, you put your foot down. You know, you get, you start to soften, and then you get people going, eh, you know what? I don't need to listen anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to tell my friend at this Christmas dinner party where we're talking about new movies that we've seen. And I'm like, I love the important cinema club, but these guys didn't remind me. So I'm not going to mention you got to listen to this. All right. Where can they write us a letter? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Who cares? Man. Yeah, yeah, who cares? But listen, next week, our big Tim Allen Santa Claus special. Until then, <laughs> my name's Justin the Clue. And I was Will Sloan. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So the Christmas season is coming up, Will. And uh, you're going to have to buy presents for all your film loving friends, right? Uh, I don't remember <laughs> signing off on this, but okay. <laughs> no, I mean like your family. This is a hypothetical, yeah, my, right? My family. So are you going to get some film related merchandise because this is a film podcast? Uh, am I? <laughs> I don't think I am. I'll probably get my mom a book. I might get my dad a CD. Who knows? <laughs> that's it? You're not going to get him like, I don't know, some Blu ray release that's come out? My parents don't watch movies more than once. Really? Yeah. Just once? They're like, what is the point of Blu rays or DVDs? Yeah, basically. I mean, why do we watch do we watch the stuff we buy more than once oftentimes not i'm afraid <laughs> every now and then yes okay yeah, yeah. uh what are, what are you getting for your uh for your friends and family well i'm gonna get um the release of a little movie called teddy Bomb. Oh, shit. see i was queuing you up there just waiting for you who, to uh who is the director of this film it's a director named justin the clue ah uh, yes Me? the edgar g elmer of toronto <laughs> Toiling away in relative obscurity with low budgets and yet still making personal art. Oh, uh, man, I would love to be the Edgar G. Elmer of Toronto. But this movie that has taken uh, almost five years to finally hit Blu-ray. It's even... your The Other Side of the Wind. <laughs> exactly. It's my day the clown cried, if you will. Um, is finally hitting physical media so people can watch it. And it is uh, packed with more special features than you would ever watch or want to watch. How many commentary tracks are on this Blu-ray? Ten uh, commentary tracks. Ten commentaries. <laughs> yes. So Feature lengths. It's not like one of those ones that ends half an hour in or anything like that. So, friends, like... If you're worried that you're going to run out of music to play when you're having sex, don't worry, because there are 10 commentary tracks. Someone pointed out that because I kind of moderate every commentary track and get involved in the discussions we're having, it's a real like portrait of a young man as an artist, because you get to see every side of me with all these different people <laughs> as I'm reacting to the things that they're saying. This may be like this may be too revealing, honestly. <laughs> I think it is. Where can people uh, buy this uh, Blu-ray disc? They can go to teddybomb.com and they can order it from there, and they can get it. It's twenty dollars plus shipping wherever you may be, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, they can get that. It comes with the making of, deleted scenes, alternate scenes, and also like let's just say as a hypothetical, let's say I'm living in Toronto right now, mm -hmm. like right now on a day, that's... and you're listening to this on the Monday that this is playing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not listening to it six years in the future. When <laughs> or it... when the whole world has been destroyed and yeah. this is one of the final relics of civilization. Right. Yes. Well, if you're listening to it before December 14th, on December 14th, we're having a screening at the Royal Cinema at 7 p.m. of Teddy Bomb. And I will be selling Blu-rays there, including the Ultimate Edition of Teddy Bomb. What's on the Ultimate Edition? You get a rough cut that for a long time was the only way the movie existed that has completely different music, about eight minutes longer, but it's very different the edit from the way the movie ended up being because I went in and re-edited it afterwards. And almost every actor has a different voice. 
Uh, even the lead has a different voice. <laughs> the bear, who's the co-star of the film, is voiced by Peter Kaplowski in The Rough Cut. Wow, why did you change the voices? Because um, we rushed uh, The Rough Cut to submit to one particular film festival, and the actor who plays the main character was out of the country. Was the film festival a uh, con? Yes, chance? it was. Yeah. And... They gave us a slot, but it was near the end of the film festival. And we were like, no, no, we need to open or nothing. <laughs> well, I'll be at this screening. I, I anticipate it will go something like uh, when Stravinsky first played the Rite of Spring. And <laughs> Just people, stampedes. People started of... tearing up the seats or, or, you know, one of those or perhaps one of those legendary Sex Pistols concerts where few people saw them live, but everyone who did started their own band. And it's going to be one of those times as well where you're like, I wish I could see Justin and Will together. Oh, we'll, we'll We're going to be there. <laughs>